You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek Podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Good morning, everybody. My name's Tim. Uh, as Kirk said, I'm the Senior Minister here at St. John's, and uh, I'm going to I think with you a little bit about what this passage means. Now, superheroes are very big in our house at the moment. So uh, Sam, our four-year-old son, uh, is very into superheroes because he's got certain items of clothing which have superhero, superhero symbols on them. Now, the particular item of clothing are sometimes worn by superheroes on the outside of their pants... Uh, but Sam doesn't wear them on the outside of his pants, so please don't ask to see them because he'll probably show you. But a common discussion for us in our house each day is, would you like to be Superman or Batman or The Flash? Uh, And he picks. And the thing about superheroes is that their names often tell you what is so special about them, what they're superpowers are or what's significant about them. So Batman is dark and he's mysterious. He kind of glides down using his cape. The Flash is extremely fast. And Superman, well, he's just super. He can fly, he's super strong, he's even got X-ray vision. This Bible reading that we've had this morning from Isaiah speaks about a character called the Servant. It's one of four songs in the book of Isaiah, four prophecies about this figure called the servant. Now, if you were dreaming up a new superhero, I doubt you would come up with a superhero called the servant. Wow, what's his superpower? Well, he serves. Sounds a bit lame, a bit ordinary, doesn't it? And yet today we've come together to celebrate this figure the servant who is greater than any superhero that we could dream up or imagine and yet was a real person who lived within history in real time on this earth. And what he achieved for us is incredible. And he did it all by serving. So the book of Isaiah is a book of prophecy. As Kirk said, it's written hundreds of years before Jesus lived on earth. Uh, And It speaks about this figure, the servant, who is going to come in the future. Uh, And Christians believe that Jesus Christ, in his coming, in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, is a fulfillment of these prophecies about the servant. Now, if you're with us today, and uh, you're not normally a churchgoer, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you are very welcome. We're so pleased that you're here with us today. Um, You might be a bit sceptical about this whole idea of prophecy. How can anyone possibly tell the future? It sounds a little bit like Nostradamus with these vague prophecies that can be interpreted in any number of ways and, and people sort of fit things in to make it seem like it's a prediction of the future. And I understand your scepticism and frankly I share it. If someone says to me that they can predict the future, I'm unlikely to believe them. But as someone who has wrestled hard with the Bible and thought about these and and looked at it um, in a sceptical way, um, 
I've become convinced that this is quite an incredible thing that we see in Isaiah where these predictions are made and yet they are fulfilled in Jesus. It's very clear that what Isaiah is writing is written a long time before Jesus. Uh, on the screen is a picture of what's called uh, the Great Isaiah Scroll. It was found with the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, all of these manuscripts that were found in caves, um, which had been hidden for a long time. And it's agreed amongst historians that this Great Isaiah Scroll, which contains all 66 chapters of Isaiah, is dated to around 125 BC. So this is all clearly written well before Jesus' time. And yet, the things that are said about this figure the servant line up with what Jesus did. And so my natural scepticism has been overturned on the strength of the evidence that I see in the Bible. And so my challenge for you is not to just dismiss this out of hand without a serious weighing up of it for yourself. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is God's word, that God speaks to us, addresses our real situation and speaks to us here and now through the Bible. And if God is God, the great God who made everything, who is beyond the universe and beyond time itself, is it so incredible that he can know the future and can speak it ahead of time? Uh, maybe the trouble is that our view of God is too small and he's even more incredible than we think. And for a number of people in this church, uh, and maybe if a friend brought you today, it's worth asking them this question, um, seeing these words written hundreds of years and yet fulfilled in Jesus has been one of the key things for them actually coming to be a follower of Jesus and putting their trust in him. And perhaps it could be a turning point for you too if you're willing to consider this uh, and weigh up the evidence that is there. Certainly for the first Christians, they were convinced that these words of prophecy from Isaiah, written hundreds of years before Jesus, spoke very clearly about Jesus and what he did, that he is the servant being spoken about. So there's a story in the book of Acts which tells the story of the early church, and we see in that book in chapter 8 a figure there who's uh, he's a, he's a court official for the queen of Ethiopia. He's actually her treasurer, so he's, he's a very important person, well-educated. And uh, he's riding along in his chariot and reading a scroll. And what he's reading is exactly what Steph read to us this morning, a section from Isaiah 53. And he's reading it, but he can't understand it. He's wrestling with it. What does this mean? And Philip, who's a follower of Jesus, happens to be nearby. And uh, the man, the Ethiopian man, says to him, who is the prophet speaking about when he's writing these things? Is he saying these things about himself or is he speaking of someone else? And Acts 8 says that Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Philip was in no doubt that Isaiah 53 was speaking about Jesus who is the servant and he uses that as the starting point to, he, to tell him the good news about Jesus, leading to that man actually becoming a follower of Jesus. So this Good Friday, what I want us to do is to have a look at this prophecy about the servant, to see how it is fulfilled in the death of Jesus and how it actually interprets for us the meaning 
of why Jesus died on the cross. If you're looking for a superhero, you're pretty soon disappointed when you come to this passage because the servant is described as being pretty ordinary. Verse 2 says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So to look at him, he's not much. He's not attractive, he's not glamorous, just an ordinary person. He's certainly no Chris Hemsworth, uh, the person who uh, the Thor movies, the success of the Thor movies have been based on his rugged good looks. And frankly, it's a pity that modern movies that portray Jesus don't take his ordinariness as described here more seriously. Perhaps then we could avoid the... um, the hot-looking Jesus with blue eyes and blow-waved blonde hair because that is nowhere to be seen here. He's an ordinary, unremarkable Jewish man of the first century. But what is extraordinary is the level of suffering that the servant undergoes. It's described in horrendous terms. So verse 14 says, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. This is deep and horrible suffering, and it's perfectly consistent with what we know about crucifixion. Crucifixion was one of the worst forms of torture that the human mind had invented, designed to bring a slow death to its victims, taking days of agonising pain before they finally succumbed to death. And it's hardly surprising that a person undergoing this terrible torture would be unrecognisable as the person who had previously been known and that by the end of it, they hardly looked human at all. In fact, the whole process was intended to be dehumanising because it wasn't simply the pain of crucifixion that made it such a powerful deterrent, but it was intended to shame and to bring down the victim, to make them nothing. And so we read too in in verse 3 of the servant, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Naked, beaten, bloodied, The servant hangs before the masses as they heap abuse and mockery on him. And it's rightly that people hide their faces from him. They're ashamed to know him, to look at him, to be associated with him. This is embarrassing. This is shameful. And yet in the midst of it all, we see that the servant faces it with silence. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. His appearance is not remarkable. The level of suffering he undergoes is extraordinary. But his response is surprising because he faces it all quietly and willingly. He doesn't protest it. He doesn't fight it. He goes as a willing victim to suffer this fate. Now, why would he do that? Well, it could be because he's getting what he deserves. Sometimes when we do the wrong thing and we're punished for it, we say, well, that's fair enough, I deserved it and I'll 
I'll cop the fine or I'll pay the price. I overstayed the two-hour parking limit down at Diamond Creek Station a few years ago, and when I got back, there was one of those tickets on my windscreen telling me that I had a hefty fine to pay. Now, I could have stormed and raged against the system, said how unfair it was, but I'd done the wrong thing. It was a two-hour parking zone, and I had stayed too long, so I just paid the fine. Fair enough. So is the servant here being quiet and passive because he's getting what he deserves? No, quite the opposite. Verse 9 says, He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So here we've got an innocent victim of suffering, facing horrendous treatment and shameful abuse, and yet he's silent and he goes to his death willingly. Why on earth would he do that? Well, here's the remarkable thing about this passage of prophecy. Not only does it speak about Jesus suffering hundreds of years before he experiences it, but it actually gives us one of the clearest explanations in the whole of the Bible about why Jesus went to the cross. Verses 4 to 6 form the heart of this passage. They're right in the middle of the passage, which in Hebrew thinking was often where the key part of the matter was, right in the middle. And you can't avoid seeing, as you read verses 4 to 6, the contrast between what he, the servant, experiences and the benefits that it brings to us. There's a contrast throughout between him and us, which spells it out quite clearly. Let me read it for you. It's highlighted on the screen just to show you this powerful contrast that's being presented here. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Don't be put off by some of the words here. Words like transgressions and iniquities are not commonly used. But they just describe the wrong that we do. Ungenerous thoughts that we think towards others. Words that hurt and discourage people rather than build them up. Actions that are self-serving rather than for the good of others. Inaction and indifference to the suffering of others and failing to help them. All of us have flaws and failings in our lives. All of us have done things and continue to do things that um, are our own way, really, rather than God's way, the way that God would have us live. So we're all like sheep wandering off the path, doing things as we choose. It's been interesting this week, hasn't it, to observe the the outraged reactions to the Australian cricket team after admissions of ball tampering. Um, I'm a cricket tragic myself. Uh, My dream as a kid was to play cricket for Australia, and that time has sadly passed. (laughs) But I've been appalled and embarrassed 
by our cricket team and their blatant cheating this week and by their admission that this was premeditated cheating in order to change the condition of the cricket ball. And I know, speaking to other people, that people have felt real anger and outrage because of what have happened, and, and rightly so. But there's been a number of comments and reflections uh, on this reaction. Uh, some people have commented on how Australians are very indifferent to other wrongs that are going on, and yet have been outraged by this particular wrong. Uh, so, uh, an example here, you know, tamper, children overboard, offshore detention, all of these other things, Australians are meh, you know, who cares? Great, you know, injustices that are being done. But tamper with a ball in cricket, the Australian cricket team disappoint us, you know, we've lost our way, what's become of us? Another interesting aspect is that people are so disgusted at uh, Steve Smith, the Australian cricket captain, and the other players involved, because they've broken the rules of cricket and they've gone against the spirit of the game. But many of us who criticise them for breaking the rules do that ourselves. We, we speed in our cars. We take a cash payment to avoid paying tax, or some other things where we bend the rules to benefit us and get ahead in much the same way that they've done. And as this passage says to us, the truth is that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. No one does the right thing all the time. None of us live up to God's perfect standards all the time in our lives. And if we have been outraged this week at the behaviour of Steve Smith and the other players, it's a good opportunity for us to say, can I examine my own heart and my own life and ask if there were cameras on me 24 hours a day in the same way that the camera caught the behaviour, the offending behaviour in that cricket match. If I had a camera on me all of the time, would something be exposed in my life that I'm ashamed of? One of the things that Steve Smith said in the press conference yesterday was, I hope that I will be able to earn forgiveness. He said that to the Australian public. I hope I'll be able to earn forgiveness. Here is the good news for Steve Smith. And here is the good news for all of us. We don't need to earn forgiveness. God offers it to us freely in Jesus Christ. Here's the good news of this passage. The purpose of the servant's suffering, the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross, is so that the wrong things that we've done are taken from us and taken by him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In the cross, an exchange, a, a swap takes place where our wrong is taken from us and dealt with by him. His perfect life is given to us, enabling us back into relationship with God. Jesus is not suffering for no purpose, but for a crucial purpose. 
The reason that he willingly and silently goes to the cross is because he's achieving our rescue by doing it. He's dealing with our wrongdoing. He's suffering and dying to deal with it. The end of verse 5 just sums these up so beautifully, what Jesus achieves for us. By his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we're healed. As Jesus' battered and bloodied body hangs on the cross, we're receiving healing from him. Context here shows that the healing that's being spoken of is, is our brokenness caused by the wrong that we do and caused by the wrongs that others do to us, that we're victims of. We're all broken. We're all wounded. You may be very conscious of areas in your own life where you do need God's healing touch. Something that you've done that sort of sits as guilt on your conscience. A deep regret for the past decisions that you've made. A series of what-ifs about things that might have been different if you've only approached them differently. On the other hand, you might be carrying wounds, hurts, deep hurts, as the result of other people's wrong actions which have been done to you. They're absolutely not your wrongdoing. You're the victim of their wrong, but it's left you wounded and it's left you broken and it's left you in need of help. And this passage reminds us that for all of these things, it is by his wounds that we are healed. Jesus, the suffering servant, is wounded to bring us healing. And so we can bring all of these wounds, all of these guilts, all of these hurts to him. We can lay them at the cross and hand them over to him, asking that he would forgive us, that he would cleanse us, that he'd heal us, he'd strengthen us, he'd rebuild us, he'd restore us. The reason we can be so confident of the healing power of the cross is that it is through the cross that Jesus brings us back into relationship with God. And it is in relationship with God where healing is to be found because God made us, God knows us intimately and God loves us more deeply than anyone else ever could. Drawing close to God through Jesus Christ is where healing for brokenness is found. It's not a guarantee that coming to God, all of your problems will instantly be solved. They won't be. The process of healing and rebuilding our lives takes time. It may take hard work. There may be areas even where we ask for healing, from physical healing, for example, and God may say, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Healing is not guaranteed in the short term, but it is guaranteed in the long term. But the long term is the resurrection when Jesus returns, when we'll be fully healed and fully restored, when the completion of the, of the healing work of the cross comes to its complete end. Because we know that the story of Jesus doesn't end with the cross. Isaiah 53 is filled with hints that although the servant suffers, that's not the end of the story, that he'll also be raised, lifted up, exalted. Verse 11 says that after he's suffered, he'll see the light of life. The servant suffers, he's wounded so that we may be healed. 
but he'll also see the light of life and he'll bring new life to others. But that is Sunday's story. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 6pm.